A wealth of action on both the men's and women's sides of emerging cricket from the Women's T20 World Cup Qualifier, Women's Asia Cup, Women's Pacific Cup, Africa Men's T20 Cup, UAE v Bangladesh ahead of the Men's T20 World Cup, and a look at the European Cricket Championships all coming up this week. And as always, this show is made possible by our emerging cricket patrons. From as little as $2 a month, you can help the cause by becoming an EC patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash emerging cricket. Before we get into the show, some news that broke after we recorded this week. Thailand's Rosanan Kano has been suspended from bowling in international cricket with immediate effect after the ICC's expert panel confirmed that the off-spinner uses an illegal bowling action. The 23-year-old was reported by match officials following her side's T20 World Cup qualifier match against Bangladesh on September 23. Kano's suspension shall remain in place until such time she submits to a reassessment of her bowling action and the assessment concludes that her bowling action is legal. We'll have more as that story develops, but for now, enjoy another EC pod. Well, welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast live and on Sport FM in Perth. Full compliment in again today to talk all things cricket and it has been a very big week in the emerging world. Women's qualifier, headlining a solid week of international cricket in the emerging game and to talk about it as always, Nick Skinner and Tim Cutler joining me, Daniel Beswick. First to you, Nick. Bit of an adventure last week around the uh, Icelandic mainland. How was that? Yeah, a lot of fun. Went up north to Akureyri, which is their second biggest city with about 20,000 people. Um, so, you know, that's nice. Um, and, and a few kind of villages around there. Uh, a lot of uh, hot springs, a lot of waterfalls, all the usual kind of Icelandic nature. We, we were traveling around with a guy who's basically his kind of obsession in life is finding every single geothermal hot spring in Iceland and, and swimming in it. So we, we visited a few of those and that was that was a lot of fun. How many did you get in? I got in three, in three different locations. Okay. Uh, we decided not to go into the fourth, uh, which was on on the coast, and the, the wind was absolutely howling, and it was about zero degrees, um, so we, we decided not to get our kid off in that weather. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. As someone who's just come from the tropics of where Tim is residing, uh, no thank you. Well, yeah, just about the polar opposite, I would say. Glad to hear you're making the most of your time in a new land, Nick. Uh, Looking over to you, Tim, after one competition is finished, you've got another one in the offing uh, on the women's side. How are you uh, preparing for all of that? Never a dull moment. Thank you, Daniel. But um, yeah, I think the polar opposite would be probably us getting in ice baths here as opposed to you getting into the uh, hot springs, Nicholas. But yeah, no rest for the wicked. Women's Pacific Cup, long planned, much delayed initiative happening. Uh, next week, we'll see Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Samoa and Vanuatu duke it out. And well, three game days, but double headers each day. So six matches each so that's really great to see so that sits outside of any icc event so it's a pacific nations getting together and trying to create a identity for the game in the pacific through women's cricket and considering the women haven't been able to play for geez it'd be almost four years now we're sort of lamenting how long it's been for the men sort of on the broadcast weren't we but um it's been even longer for the women so no really excited about that lots going on trying to get that sorted some i was already here and i think by the time everyone listens to this PNG will be landing in Fiji about to, so it's all go, go, go. That'll be 
side by side on the two Vanuatu cricket grounds. But uh, yeah, otherwise good. I don't feel like I've uh, taken breath since the men's tournament finished and this one is about to begin. And uh, I won't say I'm looking forward to it being over, but I feel like after this it will be a chance to sort of actually get some other work done before the men then go off to Malaysia in November for the last Challenge League league. So no, it's been been pretty crickety. How are you going, Daniel? Are you still in your depressive state after being back from Vanuatu? Uh, yeah, I can confirm that the tan is still present, but the glow is waning day by day. I have felt better as I've sort of been here, which makes me think that I was revitalised to some point. I actually think I'm still on sort of Vanuatu time, but it actually works really well here for me where I turn into a morning person and I actually get up at a decent hour in in the morning when I'd probably be getting up an hour later. Uh, But we'll be looking forward to seeing how that Pacific Cup goes and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail a little bit later on. It's been a big week in the women's game, uh, a huge basket case of a story in women's cricket this week and could gratefully say it wasn't to do with the women's qualifier, which we will be looking at in great depth, of course, for the T20 World Cup. Do we want to weigh in on <laughs> on the situation? I think we've made it pretty clear in our time uh, in the podcast what our position is. I think we can just basically prescribe everyone to, to read the, the Peter Delapena Twitter thread. Yeah, I think PDP's thread is uh, <laughs> the definitive statement on this whole instant where he forensically goes through dozens of screenshots of various England batters backing up too early and, and not being run out and eventually, uh, you know, Dipti Sharma finally took the bows off against Dean. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think you're all well aware that I'm a I'm a mancad maximalist. So, you know, <laughs> any moment before the ball leaves the bowler's hand is fair game in my view. I'm, I'm all for, you know, just running out the non-striker every chance you possibly can. Um, so I, I'm 100% in favour of this. My name is Nick Skinner and I approve this message. Um, <laughs> My name is Nick Skinner and I'm a man cat addict. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, Hi, Nick. Nick. Um, you know, to, to see PDP's follower numbers be doubled just by a simple retweet from Harsha Bogley just sent you know, the power. You know, I think, you know, Peter should take a leaf out of a certain Australian quasi-journalist book and just, you know, take the interest he's got from a subcontinental cricket power and run with it. And he can just become, you know, Peter does cricket or something and just start tweeting about Indian cricket. And oh, We don't need to. No, don't go there. <laughs> oh, but it's been interesting. It's, oh, it's predictable as sin, isn't it, to see how, well, firstly, the way that the or at least English cricket media reacted straight away in the majority. But then everybody tweeting about, well, they, they should have warned... <laughs> the bowler should have warned the batter and all these other things. Oh, it's, oh, it's almost like they don't listen to the podcast. Where have you been for the last three years is the real question. Uh, yeah, echo the sentiments and would reiterate to go and read PDP's forensic analysis. I think that's the best description of it. Uh, and I think that's where we'll kind of leave it. Instead, we'll focus all of our attention on the Women's T20 World Cup qualifier, Bangladesh and Ireland progressing to the main stage in South Africa next year. Uh, in the hot and sweltering weather of Abu Dhabi as well, I might add, uh, which I'm sure the Irish didn't exactly like nor probably every other team in the competition for that matter but I've got to say and I, I just I'll, I'll start with you Nick to ask the question and we'll talk about I think the one big story from us was that Thailand haven't been able to match their efforts at the last T20 World Cup qualifier but the more that I think about it the more I'm kind of the belief that 
it's simply a collective raising of talent from throughout this kind of level of the game that it's actually probably made it more difficult for a team like Thailand to do what they did a few years back. I think they're a good side. They've probably been a little bit rusty here in the build-up, but you can't really fault anything that Bangladesh or Ireland did in the week that went on in Abu Dhabi, and they were probably deserved qualifiers when it's all said and done. But the collective talent around the group was was pretty strong throughout. No, well, we, we remember back in 2019, it was uh, Ireland that Thailand got past to qualify for the T20 World Cup. And I think Ireland, you know, in this event are significantly better than they were last time. And they're even they're significantly better than they were in the regional qualifiers in 2021, where uh, where Scotland knocked them over and, and got gained that automatic slot. So I, I agree in terms of the raising of the standard. I think Thailand are still good enough to have qualified. They definitely were undercooked, you know, looking at their batting, especially at the 50-over qualifiers last year where, I mean, we all know what happened with the ICC, you know, cancelling the event and going on rankings and Thailand <laughs> were literally not able to get a ranking because of status and all, all of that. But at that tournament, they looked really good because they'd played for a month or more in Zimbabwe and South Africa with a number of warm-up games and several series in, in both formats uh, against, yeah, against Zimbabwe and against a, a sort of South Africa emerging 11 sort of thing. Um, so they were they were running hot because they'd had a lot of cricket under their belt. And whereas coming into this tournament, they just looked, yeah, a little bit rusty in a couple of spots. They're just a bit sluggish. The batting especially, I mean, this has always been a problem for them. It, it, you know, their batting can be pretty slow. And, you know, just looking at the, the run charts, Nadakan Chantam was the only batter with a strike rate above 100. And that was, you know, 106. And that was mostly from that 60-odd uh, she got against Bangladesh where... You know, the match was kind of mostly gone by the time she, she really started hitting out anyway. So, you know, that's one thing that ha- they've always struggled with. That That's always been a, a point of weakness for them is their batting doesn't really have the kind of explosive power hitting that you would really want from someone up top. Chantam can do that. You know, she can clear the rope, but she's she's sometimes a bit slow uh, to get going. And, you know, we, we saw that this tournament. And, and, you know, looking at some of the other shuffles around, Chanita Sudarang... I don't know if she's fully settled into her role. We thought towards the end of last year she was really coming into her own as a, as a finisher, coming in down that sort of around number six and, and um, really upping the strike rate, which is what Thailand always need. But she wasn't she wasn't really doing that. And then she still isn't bowling a whole lot, which I think is a mistake because in a bowling lineup full of you know finger spinners, and they're all very good, Chanita's swing bowling is, is a, a pretty big point of difference. And, and I think she's... Uh, underutilized in that role. You know, Nataya Butchertam as well was one who, you know, according to our information, she's sort of basically given up on batting and she, she's almost not not practicing it at all, which is quite strange because she was a top order bat not too long ago uh, and and doing a pretty good job. Yeah, Contraronkai at the top was solid. She, she was getting off to, to solid starts, but with a strike rate of 86, you know, that's okay if, if maybe one batter is doing that. But basically nobody else was was there to kind of make up for it. So yeah, Thailand have have often struggled for runs, but it was especially pronounced here. And and you know, full credit to the other teams, they've got better. Uh, but at the same time, if they just batted a little bit better, I think they they probably could should have qualified. You know, they only missed out against Bangladesh. They only missed out by 11 runs uh, against Bangladesh in the end. So yeah, uh, you know, it, and that's that's kind of one extra single in half of the overs, and they're there. So you know, that's that's something that they really really need to work on. Just rotating the strike more, even if they're not able to 
clear the boundaries. You know, their bowling was still good, their fielding was still good, but the, the batting, they were found out. It's an interesting one to see how the, the roles have, have changed over time. You know, you, you talk about those that were batting the top three and now aren't batting in a bowling and others are open the bowling and batting down low and now not bowling as much. It's a, it's an interesting one. I just, I wonder, you say the other teams have got better. I wonder if the likes of, of Ireland have taken a bit out of Thailand's book and sort of focused a bit more on, on the development of the women's team, knowing how, how important it can be that we've seen this squad be together for... A long time now. I won't say it's like a, a PNG level of stickiness and not seeing that much renewal, but it's just interesting to, to, to see and thinking what what's next for Thailand. But what comes through for me probably more of all of this to see how close those two semifinals were and to see the teams progress. And if you did a straw poll and ask someone how many teams are in the T20 Women's World Cup and to see it's only 10, I think it just shows how, how much the ICC have missed a trick here by extending the size of the event that's going to be in in South Africa that could have easily been 12, 14 or 16 with a a sort of broader church that would have seen, looking at the semi-finalist, Thailand and and Zimbabwe would have fit right in and then you look down another couple of layers and see the likes of of Scotland and PNG that the gaps weren't that large to say that these were clearly the two best teams, maybe apart from a Bangladesh that went through the competition undefeated as they did back in 2019 to get into the, the 2020 Women's World Cup. But that's sort of what I, I come out with all of this, just still can't believe that, that the uh, the women's event is only going to be 10 teams. Yeah, and you have to also remember too that Zimbabwe didn't play in the last cycle for this with the ICC suspension. They weren't at the 2019 qualifier, so it just added another competitive team in what is now a pretty competitive mix. Uh, and looking at a team, two teams that, didn't progress either, but two teams that have definitely shown growth, I think, at this level, UAE and, and PNG. UAE, whose under-19s team is is one to look out for as well. They're starting to show some nous at the senior level. And it's Papua New Guinea as well, where they've been awarded one-day international status. It's just a case of, well, you know, what does that entail and who will they actually play with that status in mind uh, notice that Tanya rumor was 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 strong with with the bat but yeah where where to it's one of those questions that we brought up when we spoke about the EAP sub-regional qualifier last week you know for teams like PNG and yes you know there's a Pacific Cup in the offing here with with Tim that we'll, we'll talk about but yeah what it's a case of where to now I mean you look at say UAE and at least you know you've got a women's Asia Cup the ACC is is relatively strong as well but What's next in, in, in the cycle for, for the likes of these teams? Well, countries, the likes of Thailand and UAE, you know, they're lucky that they'll have a, an Asia Cup that will sort of be running around the cycles. And you know, while we were lamenting, well, well, I was lamenting, there was only 10 teams. You know, in 2026, we'll see the, the Women's T20 World Cup increase to 12 teams, and that will run every two years, the same as the men's event, albeit that the men's event from 2024 will have 20 teams um, all the way past... 2030 and and beyond and then the women's world cup will expand to 10 teams in 2029 but you know as you say what what's next i guess it all drops back to to regional qualifiers and and with the changes that we've seen in the the men's qualifiers i wonder if we're going to see anything similar maybe on the women's side if it goes if it extends by two teams and at the moment we're seeing two teams qualify i wonder if a another team may fall back from the next world cup meaning we'll go back to regional qualifiers and it will be the next five coming out of regional qualifiers so you never know what that means and whether we're going to see a direct qualifier from 
each of the ICC's five regions sort of side by side with the men's, but also in conversations, and I won't say official conversations, more just asking questions about the disparity between the number of teams in men's and women's tournaments. I won't say I have a good feeling, but it sounds like there, there is a willingness in the background to potentially increase the numbers of teams in those women's events before what's been planned out there, which is beyond 2030, which I think we could all agree would be would be great. But, you know, if you're not in Asia, you know, I guess we've seen the continued growth of the likes of Kabuka and, and African championships. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough one for the likes of Thailand. And if it means they're going to have to be arranging more and more bilaterals, then that's, that's more and more money than they've got to find. Uh, yeah, looking at, at some of the other teams we haven't, spoken about we did touch on Zimbabwe re-entering the cycle uh, well, a lot of the stuff was out of probably the, the women's team's control when they were denied a chance to qualify three years ago they showed bits and pieces again with a couple of good performances and uh, young Kelly Sinlova I think he's only maybe 15 or 16 I can't remember off the top of my head but she looks to be certainly an impressive player that we'll, we'll see many years to come in Zimbabwe women's cricket they have shown at times they've they've got bits and pieces about them you know the likes of Marianne Musonda in times gone by have performed really well at the international level but Nick it just seemed like they weren't quite able to to piece it all together here at, at this particular tournament yeah and I don't think that's anything to do with the quality of the team um, you know as, as you say and Lovu topping the wicket tally with 11 wickets uh, she's yeah 16 as you say so a lot of uh, a lot of years to come from from her hopefully for Zimbabwe uh, Simbanda as well Always reliable with the ball. Zimbabwe having a number of players in, in the top wicket takers uh, was was very helpful. I think the reason they didn't qualify was more to do with uh, their team kind of choking a bit more so than their team not being good enough. Uh, you know, you look at the results even against the UAE when they they lost that thriller and the last ball. You know, there were a number of wides and and some kind of misfields and dropped catches and stuff. So it, it looked like the the nerves were kind of telling on them. Uh, and then yeah, the semi final against Ireland. Same thing, you know, Ireland won by four runs. The Zimbabweans, they just look like they kind of weren't used to that sort of pressure. And, and you yeah, know, maybe that is due to being kind of outside the qualification pathway for a, a whole cycle due to the um, the suspension. Because, yeah, Zimbabwe definitely have the quality there. And uh, as, as I think we talked about with Tom uh, a couple of weeks ago, they've recently I- implemented central contracts, which will certainly help. And they're kind of a funny one, Zimbabwe. They're still a bit better than anyone else in the women's kind of associate sphere in Africa. You know, teams like Uganda and Namibia, are, you know, they're nipping at the heels, but they're, they're not quite there yet. But they're also definitely not good enough to be competing with, uh, you know, South Africa. And, and as we can see here, not qualifying for the World Cup. So they're, they're kind of in a, a funny in-between stage at the moment. But you know, you'd think they're on the way up because, yeah, there's been an investment into women's cricket there. As Tim points out, you know, the, the Thailand model of, you know, the, the, it, it's it's often a way for a team to make a lot more strides in, in a short amount of time, whereas the men's game is kind of uh, a, a bit more set in stone uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, looking elsewhere, uh, yeah, Ireland, as we said, very much improved. Four of their batters averaging 25 or more with a 100-plus strike rate. Uh, that's a lot better. Um, than they have been in the past, and and it seems like they've kind of figured out that, you know, at this level especially, you just need to have you know a, a range of options that can keep the scoreboard ticking over. You know, the, the Thailand, you know, I don't want to be 
too harsh on them, but you know, Naramol Chaiwai was was honestly terrible. You know, average of twelve, only scored fifty one runs in the whole tournament. And for your captain and one of your best batters, that's you know, that's leaving a huge hole in a batting lineup that's already kind of fragile at times. Um yeah, Bangladesh obviously by some distance the best team at this qualifier. And yeah, again, batting, you know, all these teams have have a solid bowling lineup, which is something we talk about a lot with, well, associate cricket in general, but especially associate women's cricket. Yeah, Scotland's batting, again, it's it still the whole time, it, it basically Bryce or bust. Uh, Hawley, who came into the team, Saskia Hawley, uh, has grown up in Australia around the kind of grade system there. Uh, she looked quite good in a bilateral series against Ireland, but she, she really fizzled out here. Yeah, PNG again, Tanya Rumor topped the tournament run charts, but there wasn't a whole lot else with the bat. So again, these teams really, they have a couple of good players, but they, they really need to develop some depth with the bat. I mean, Bangladesh are a quality outfit now. Uh, the, you know, they claimed a win against Pakistan in the 50-over format in the Women's Cricket World Cup to begin the year. So, you know, it's not as if they're easy beats by any means, even if they are a full member. I, I, and I suppose one thing, Nick, to, to kind of round out the conversation was the Abu Dhabi conditions. It was, you know, in the at least the low 40s at times there. It was sweltering heat. I can't imagine it was great to play in it. And, yeah, uh, probably a good opportunity for us to plug our, our chat with Liz Hanna and, and talks of climate change and how much of an effect it could have on cricket. And tremendously bad effects, that is. But, yeah, it, it didn't look comfy for, for everyone on show playing in that tournament. It's definitely not the type of conditions that you would probably get the best out of the players. Well, yeah, and definitely if you haven't already heard it, uh, scroll back and, and look for our Deep Point episode with uh, Dr. Liz Hanna. Uh, she goes through a lot of the kind of health implications of, of playing in, in hot weather and increasingly hot weather, which we will see. Um, and we're already seeing, you know, climate change is, is here. It's it's not just, you know, five or 10 years away. It's it's here now. And, and seeing, you know, teams playing in, in 40, 45, 45 plus conditions, a lot of ice baths, a lot of, you know, cold drinks, but that can only get you so far. So I do think this is something cricket needs to think about, especially since so much of cricket is being played these days in the UAE or in Oman, you know, in these countries where it's only going to get hotter. And, you know, let's not forget Pakistan, who, as as well as uh, half the country being underwater, they are facing extreme heat in various parts of their country as well. So this is something that cricket, I think, is not quite good enough at the moment at dealing with. And, and ideally, it's something that the ICC can kind of lead a conversation on because we know the ICC as a governing body doesn't have a whole lot of power, but the role that it does play is as a coordinating body. And that's something that surely is in the interests of every single uh, cricketing board is, is to figure out how to deal with the, the, you know, this looming problem. Because at some point, you're going to see players collapsing on the field. And that's not that's not responsible, you know, forcing them to, to go out in these kinds of conditions. Yeah, I know they played a lot of the games at night. And that's maybe something that cricket's going to have to look into in terms of uh, if you are going to host it in the UAE, yeah, maybe play more night games, so at least you're not in the you know the strongest heat. But yeah, I think it's a it's a growing issue. And just a reminder as well that the 2023 ICC Women's T20 World Cup begins on the 9th of February next year, and Bangladesh and Ireland are the teams to qualify from the qualifier. Let's move on to some more women's international cricket, and we did talk about it briefly there. The women's Asia Cup is in the offing. Three associate teams flying the Immersion Cricket 
banner high into the sky. Thailand and UAE, as we mentioned. Malaysia joined them as well. It's a single round-robin tournament, seven teams in it as well. So gives the associate members a good chance to, again, showcase their, their skills against full member representatives. Looking at the squads that the teams have put out, they're relatively strong across the group, whether they be associate or full member. So while we have seen the disappointment of not qualifying for a T20 World Cup for Thailand and for UAE as well, uh, Nick, it's a good chance for, for these teams to get back out there and, and to make a bit of a mark on some full member teams. Yeah, I think Thailand especially will be looking at this and thinking they're a good chance of causing some waves. As I said earlier, they were they looked a bit rusty, a bit kind of undercooked, especially with the bat. But you know they've had a whole tournament to warm up now, so you know hopefully they can they can sort that out. Uh, I, I think just going off the top of my head, they've beaten most of the teams at this tournament in the past. They've beaten Bangladesh, albeit in 50-over cricket. They've beaten Sri Lanka. That I think was their first win against a full member. Uh, they've obviously they've beaten the UAE and Malaysia. And we all know that they uh, <laughs> they should have beaten Pakistan at the T20 World Cup, but uh, the Sydney Rain... Oh, uh, yeah. That was, yeah. The Sydney Rain uh, denied them that victory. But, uh, you know, historically, I think they can feel pretty confident that, you know, there's nothing to really fear. And if they have a good tournament, there's no real reason that they can't even push for a semi-final spot, which I think would be um, would be huge for them. But uh, yeah, I mean, the single round robin, from a viewership perspective, I'm not a huge fan of it. But at the same time, the ACC, you know, the Asia Cricket Council is a development body. And this tournament, the fact they've included three associates is absolutely brilliant. And, you know, hats off to them for their commitment to growing the game, growing the women's game. And, you know, giving these associates six matches in, in a top-level tournament I think it's worth it. Yeah, for yeah, you you could definitely have a more exciting format, but the development benefits of this I think outweigh that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd I'd be watching some of these Thai players to come through. Tim kind of touched on this in terms of the uh, stickiness of their side, and but they do have some some new talent coming through. Players like Rosanan Cano, who's kind of just making her way um, in into the team as another another finger spinner. Um, Maya Putawonga is, is another pretty new one. So they, they do have new talent coming through. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is a great opportunity for the UAE to push their case. You know, we saw them, as we said, we they, they beat uh, Zimbabwe um, and they looked like they were improving over the, the course of the tournament. They, they were pretty lackluster um, in the first half and, and in the warm-ups. Uh, Malaysia is one who I think have sort of perennially underperformed uh, both at men's and women's level. So, yeah, hopefully they can get that together. But, you know, players like Masalisa, Winifred Durasingham, exciting players, you know, very, uh, very good to watch. So, yeah, looking forward to this. There will be a lot of good uh, women's associate cricket coming up. Just makes you think whether uh, the men, or at least the uh, ACC, could be doing the same with the, with the men about bringing another well, one or two associates into the Asia Cup structure as opposed to having that uh, two groups of three whether it's in t20 or uh, in 50 over cricket um, if they can do it on the, on the women's side why not do it on the men's side too yeah it, it kind of boggles the mind that of the competition formats are, are so different when you could have something like this on the men's side and would go down very well rather than splitting it into a qualifier section and the main competition when the main competition only have groups of three in a 16 format well, I, th- I think we, I think we're all aware that the men's format is kind of a reverse engineered from setting up a certain matchup as many times as possible. This is a good point. Yeah, you do make a good point. Just looking through some of the squads, uh, a couple of sort of notable names, the likes of Winifred uh, Durasingham, who 
has kind of made a name of her own, uh, largely through Fairbreak. Uh, Elsa Hunter is another Malaysia player who we've sort of seen on scorecards in times gone by. An interesting story in her own right. She's grown up in, in Australia and plays under actually a, a different name at international level. Uh, looking at some of the other teams, I think Sri Lanka are definitely beatable at this level primarily because they probably rely too much on one or two players, especially on Chamari Adipadu, who seems to have you know the weight of a country on her shoulders almost every time she goes out and plays. But yeah, it, with the, the round-robin format, it does sort of bring quite a lot of drama and emotion. And even looking at the team that India are putting up for the tournament is certainly a strong one. There's definitely a couple of players who have come in on a rotational basis, but Harmanpreet Kaur is still leading the side. Smriti still vice-captain. You know, looking at the list, Guy Quad, Risha Ghosh, Snay Rana, Jemima Rodrigues, uh, Meghna Singh, Renika Singh, Deepthi Sharma. Uh, you know, she hasn't been short of the, the news The news in the last week. Pooja Vastrika, who's one of, you know, the great young all-rounders of Asian women's cricket. Shafali Verma, you know that that's a that's a side that will be very tough to beat at, at any level. So yeah, looking forward to that, and that begins uh, on October one, goes for between October one and October sixteen. Let's move to some uh, men's international cricket. The ACA men's tournament has reached its conclusion, and it's another feather in the cap for the cricket cranes of Uganda, winning that tournament, winning the final. Chasing down Tanzania's 174, which is two balls to spare. Rezat Ali Shah, what a player. What a great cricketer at this level. Uh, 98 not out of 53 balls. The player who is a bit of a rare find in associate men's cricket as somewhat of a really good death overs batter. But I know he's coming to number four here, but we've, we've seen in times gone by, the qualifier especially, he has a knack of being able to accelerate and score runs really early in his knock. It doesn't take him long to get going. And as you can see, 98, not out of 53 balls with five fours and six sixes. He's shown his quality there again. Dertadet Muhammuza is sort of back. He was missing there for a little bit. I know he played at the qualifier, but I think he missed parts of maybe Challenge League or other action at the start of the year. Uh, but Nick, I'll, I'll start with you. It's Uganda are slowly not pulling away, but they're definitely... They're the most likely of taking probably a win over the likes of Namibia or Zimbabwe, which they have done already against Namibia. But looking at this group of teams, and even with, you know, Kenya here, you'd almost have to put Uganda in T20 cricket probably ahead of all their other rivals, at least at this level. Well, they keep winning, so, uh, (laughs) you know, there's that. That'll do it. Yeah. It's a pretty simple game, really, just to score more runs than the other team. But I think your point about Rizad Ali Shah is a good one. Uh, he's been he's been a good performer for them uh, for a number of years, but he's he's really been uh, in a, in a hot streak of form pretty recently. And as you say, he he's the kind of guy that they can come in uh, down the order, middle order, you know, wherever you need him, uh, just just absolutely blast it. And uh, that's a real point of difference, especially at this level where, you know, having that rapid acceleration is a huge advantage in both setting and chasing down totals pretty comfortably. Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Muhammuza, who was there at the other end uh, in, in that run chase. They got there with only a couple of balls to spare, but, you know, eight wickets in hand. So they were, you, you could probably just call that a well-timed chase. Yeah, Simon Sasazi is another one uh, at the top of the order who's who's been in a, a pretty good run of form uh, over the last little while. 
Uh, good to see the young bowlers coming through. That semi-final against Kenya, they're, uh, <laughs> they're, they're perennial rivals. Uh, who, you know, They've been beating them a lot recently, uh, actually. And it's kind of... Uh, y- you could make the case that that game against, against Kenya that they lost in the Challenge League basically cost them qualification to the World Cup qualifier. So it's kind of extra disappointing that they, they couldn't get over the line there. But uh, yeah, the East African rivals in a, uh, a rain-affected game... Uh, they won with three balls remaining against Kenya, so an exciting game. And and Riazad Ali Shah in the semi-final that that is um, again you know, crucial there with with 48 runs. But the young bowlers Cosmos Kawura and and Juma Miyagi, two guys who've come through the under-19s program, a couple of seam bowlers who who get good zip off the deck, and, and they took uh, four for 22 and two for 13 respectively in in that semi-final against Kenya. And and really they were the reason that uh, Kenya were restricted to. A very gettable total. Um, so yeah, good, good sort of. Uh, uh, it, it's been it's been good to follow this team for the last couple of years. You know, you're seeing guys coming through who you see them in the under 19s, and then uh, uh, you know they slowly filter in through the the senior senior ranks, and and they start performing. So it's it's really encouraging. And and Uganda's again, they're on the upswing. They've got you know a lot of quality cricket under their belt over the last little while, and and a lot of guys coming through who are, who are pushing for spots. So. Yeah, they're, they're one of the success stories uh, in a pretty successful region, uh, the African region. So, big tick for this tournament. A um, bit of a shame it's taken them sort of nearly four years to <laughs> to actually get it on the field. Um, there were a number of postponements and, and rescheduling, but uh, yeah, great tournament. Yeah, I just feel that, uh, well, I guess when this was first mooted, you know, there's talk of full members being involved, but I guess you can only hope as moving forward that they find a gap in the calendar where at least Zimbabwe is going to be available and how amazing would it be for it for the event if uh, South Africa could as well but I, I don't know I don't know what it is about African cricket at the moment across men's and women's that sort of coming out of of COVID I, I won't say it's feeling like a golden era but it just feels like there's a real upward trajectory with the men's and women's game it's just in, it'll be interesting to see you know, as the cycles get get shorter, that and you know we may see women's qualifiers go down the same regional path, but to see if any teams come through and challenge, and, and whether it's challenging Zimbabwe and Namibia, or whether one of those countries gets an auto place through, and whether it's then fighting out for that that next spot's going to be going to be really interesting because you, there's no sort of clear best team there where Uganda's doing really really well but there's a lot of potential behind them, and then even more so in the women's game too. So no, good to see. Another good tournament and sort of well well broadcast as well. Uh, just running through the tables, Uganda topped three wins from three. Botswana two and one, losing to Uganda. Ghana tasted victory over Mozambique. Mozambique finishing that group winless, and then on the other side, Tanzania topped uh, with three wins from three. Beat Kenya as well, who finished second in the group. Malawi managed to beat Cameroon, and then. Uh, looking at the semi-finals, Uganda too strong for Kenya. Tanzania beating Botswana, and then of course in the final, Uganda beating Tanzania, as mentioned at the top of the story. Uh, sticking with men's international T20Is uh, in the build-up to the T20 World Cup, which will be on Australian shores in under three weeks now. Uh, a pretty hastily put together little series. This Bangladesh who have their preparation has been hampered by rain in Dhaka. It's meant that they've actually flown out to UAE to play in a two-match T20I series against UAE. We're recording before the second T20I, uh, but UAE managed to give Bangladesh a push, although Bangladesh held on by just seven runs. We've talked about UAE's rather 
experimental team lineup in the moment un- under a new captain. They need to hit the ground running soon before it's too late. A new captain in CP, Rizwan. Ahmed Raza didn't play in the first match again, which only leads to more questions about all of that. And we talked about that at length uh, going back a few weeks now. Vrita Aravin slid down to four in the batting order. A couple of good performers. Karthik Mayapan took wickets with his leg spin. He's definitely one to watch for the tournament. A good young leg spinner. Uh, Chirag Suri made runs at the top of the order. But yeah, again, Nick, it's it's the question. You know, what's going on in, in UAE? You know, Rowan Mustafa missed out on selection entirely from the squad. Uh, the ninth T20I ranked all-rounder, according to the MRF Tires ICC player rankings. Yeah, again, not a whole lot of uh, explanation going on, and uh, questions continue to be asked of UAE. Yeah, I don't know. I, I keep saying this every week, but I mean, if they're gonna if they're gonna do this, at least provide some explanation. And you know, it's interesting. We saw where Scotland released their uh, T20 World Cup. Squad and they pr- provided sort of an explanatory note, basically, which detailed kind of the selection process and, and the thoughts behind who they were selecting, which I think that's kind of a, an example that a lot of teams could follow, and especially the UAE with, with Robin Singh. And maybe there is a master plan around, you know, sidelining a couple of their, their senior performers, but I can't see it. And yeah, it just all looks very strange from the outside. Um, in terms of on the field stuff, yeah, good effort to get that close. You know, makes you wonder what four overs of Ahmed Raza's left arm orthodox could have done. Probably might have made a bit of a difference there. A couple of guys going at, uh, you know, over eight or nine runs and over, and, and Raza's always very thrifty with his overs. So seven runs off the Bangladeshi total, and, and they're in business. So, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just disappointing that two long standing players who've been great performers for the UAE for a number of years are just kind of being messed around and no one really knows what's going on and it's just poor team management really don't know what what else we kind of I feel like we're going around the mulberry bush every uh, every week when you bring it up yeah it's just still astounding to see two players unless something has happened that we don't know about but considering we've sort of heard about everything else that's happened in UAE cricket it's just dumbfounding really and it's not a matter of rewarding someone who's not performing just because of what they've done in the past these are two players that have been continually performing for their country so it kind of leaves a bit of a sour taste in the mouth when watching the UAE knowing everything they've been through and the and the part that these two players have, have played in getting them to where they are now in the last few years so yeah I just don't get it either yeah just to kind of wrap up on it and this is coming from the perspective of just being a cricket fan you know they're about to land here and feature in warm-up matches and play in the first round of the tournament and a team back in February I was tremendously excited to watch play on Australian shores and knowing that they'd be able to give a good account of themselves with a pretty well-led team some good young talent and and some wily veterans ready to you know show the world what they've been able to do with all this cricket under their belt now I look at that team coming and it it looks a little bit rudderless and I, and I can't say that they have the same luster perhaps that, that they did six months ago and yeah that's pretty disappointing and you know if, again we talked about it before and just to wrap up one of the previous shows but if they don't give a good account of themselves and they do find themselves on the end of three defeats in in the first round there'll be several questions not just asked of full member cricket lovers who are looking down at someone like UAE but also in the associate world wonder you know what on earth they were thinking for these decisions to be made the proof will be in the pudding when they when they play in the tournament proper 
can't really hide, you know, once you get there and, and you don't perform. So, yeah, we'll be looking at that with great interest. Uh, just to round out, I suppose, the big discussion points today, and there are still a couple of news items around, but Tim, to bring it back to you, the Women's Pacific Cup beginning on the 3rd of October, four matches a day with you guys using both sides of that ground, the VCG, Vanuatu, Fiji, Samoa, PNG taking part. Uh, what are you looking out for? What can we expect from, from the tournament next week? Well, it'll be the first time I've ever seen... Well, any of these teams play, play live, but I've always been keen knowing with uh, Samoa and PNG, well, PNG and Samoa being ranked in the mid-teens consistently over the past few years, well, pre-COVID anyway. Looking forward probably more to seeing Samoa play. I know they're, they're in a bit of a rebuilding phase. The likes of Regina Lilly won't, won't be there and everyone's coming from um, being based in Samoa. But I think similar to what we saw in the men's tournament, I'm, I'm hoping for a few surprises. So I'd be good just playing that much cricket um, for the women, well, from Fiji, Samoa, and, and Vanuatu, anyway, it's been almost four years, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and I think it'll just be great just getting a bit of energy around the game for women's cricket and Vanuatu in the region and beyond, and hopefully this is a good launch pad for this to become a, an annual tournament. It'd be nice if we could have had the, the same level of streaming and commentary quality, Daniel, as we had f- for the men's, but um, this is all... All our funds, all the funds of all the of all four members competing, as opposed to the ICC paying for this. So hopefully that'll be something we see down the line, and a bit like what we did with the the hybrid and the VCG. Hopefully this will be a bit of proof of concept, and uh, who knows what the future years will bring for for the Pacific Cup. Yeah, I think it's an exciting little tournament that we've got going on. And, you know, there's a number of players that I'm pretty keen to see. Uh, Selena Solomon, obviously from Vanuatu, and I imagine it'll be um you know very exciting, as you say, four years almost uh, with them not playing on home soil, the women's team. So, uh, you know, great, great on that front. And um, yeah, big tick to you guys, I guess, in, in as well with the fact that you are keeping up your commitment to the women's game. Um, I think we've seen a lot of examples of that just being very important in, in terms of growing the game and the fact that Vanuatu is one of those places where it's kind of, it's growing side by side with men's and women's and, and it's not kind of one side or the other trying to catch up. It's just, it's growing and cricket something that anyone can play. I think that's, I mean, that's the ideal model kind of for the future, you know, everywhere in terms of growing cricket. So I love that. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, if it's all the members having to dip into their own funds, yeah, I can see why that's, that's a bit challenging. And I mean, yeah, where's, where's the East Asia Pacific office on this? I think this is the kind of thing, you know, we just talked about the women's Asia cup with, you know, seven teams, four, four members and, and, and three associates. That's something that obviously the ACC has the money to organise, but at the same time, you know, imagine if New Zealand was sending a team, or, or, or you know, maybe some kind of Australian Development Eleven. I know there's the Indigenous teams coming. Um, I, I think you mentioned that's next year, maybe. Um, so there is some level of of connection there with Australia, but yeah, I, I just think as you've talked about, building more of an identity for around the Pacific can only both grow cricket and and grow you know, the market for cricket, which is kind of what the ICC wants to be doing long-term. Well, firstly, I feel like I'm working for the ICC here and responding on their behalf, but the ACC is not the ICC. The ACC is a regional body that has the advantage of having five full members in their region. And I don't think the EAP with an Australian-New Zealand series could necessarily garner the same interest and and, and income. Uh, the ICC EAP office have been intrinsically involved in this and it probably wouldn't have happened, if I'm honest, without without their help. And this being year one, 
like we've seen probably with previous ACA events and maybe even sort of smaller Asia Cup events in, in previous years, I, I just see this as a start, a proof of concept and... Look, there is a hope that there will be involvement with teams from Australia and New Zealand in the future. What what that looks like, whether it's a Maori uh, team from New Zealand, Indigenous from Australia, who, who knows? Sort of fitting the sort of um, uh, what we're sort of building with a sort of Pacific identity on, on that. But I don't want to speak for what's going to happen in the future. But we've already received help from New Zealand cricket already in helping in the background, um, and I just hope alongside the Indigenous Tour, not tour is, I guess, side by side next year, and also the Pacific Cricket Challenge, which hasn't been announced yet, but which is exciting. It's going to be in Fiji early next year as well. That It's the beginning of a, a new dawn of, of cooperation, especially in the in the Pacific. I'm not sort of leaving, leaving our East Asia cousins in the, in the region, um, but I think there's a real opportunity from a, a Pacific point of view. Just, there's definitely the talent there. It's just the, just the opportunity um, that, that's lacking. So, no, it's, it's exciting and sort of felt a little rushed with a lot of things happening at the same time and credit probably more so or mostly to Papua New Guinea who've come back from World Cup qualifier currently in Brisbane, spending a lot of money to then transit through to, to Vanuatu to be part of this. And it, it's really great having someone of their stature sort of showing that much commitment to the, to the idea of the Pacific Cup will, will hopefully launch it into something um, bigger and brighter into the future. Great answer. Looking forward to it again, the 3rd to the 6th of October. Festival of Cricket has four matches a day, so uh, plenty going on there. A couple things to finish off tonight. The European Cricket Championships uh, are in full swing in Spain. It's still a T10 format. 21 teams, curiously, it's four groups of five plus the reigning champions, uh, the England 11 waiting for the four group winners in a championship week. Ireland 11 won seven of eight to top their group in week one. The Dutch 11 went eight from eight in week two. Uh, group C is in progress at the moment and Scotland are one and one as we record in group D play next week. And just to finish off the show, and it would be, I suppose, remiss of us not to acknowledge this, but uh, there's been more reports today per ESPN Quick Info in regards to uh, Sandy Blumashane's situation. He's come out and said he'll return home to defend against a false complaint in his view uh, when his health improves. Uh, that's come two weeks after police issued an arrest warrant uh, in Sandeep's name. Uh, the cricket has come out with a statement that the case has made him unwell, affecting him mentally and physically, and added that he's planning to return to Nepal when his health improves. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that as that goes on. Uh, but for now, I think that's the end of another Emerging Cricket Podcast, boys. Thank you for joining me to discuss everything in the emerging world. Uh, to keep up to date with things, make sure to log on to emergingcricket.com. Thank you for listening to us. We'll be back again next week wherever you are getting your podcast but uh, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Culler and myself Daniel Beswick it's goodbye.